these noise-canceling earbuds were going to be, and she kept seeing situations where, wow, noise-canceling earbuds are going to be so great in this situation. And as soon as she had placed that order, she knew that she had them. And she said, God's promises are just like that, that when he makes us a promise, he's showing us what he has available to us. Just like when she saw in the magazine that she could have noise-canceling earbuds, she didn't know that was available to her. And then as soon as she realized what was available, she was excited about it. So God makes promises to us, first of all, to show us what's available and create that desire in us, and then to build anticipation in us. And then also to give himself the credit. So when she received those earbuds, she um, was thrilled. And when we receive the promises from God, we know they're from him and that we didn't do that for ourselves. So he then gets all the glory, praise, and honor, and he's all about glorifying himself. So that's why God is a promise-making God. So why promises made? Why are we calling the study promises made? Mark Dever really... Um, this is his uh, curriculum. So he, he says we can call the Old Testament promises made, and we could call the New Testament promises kept. All the promises made are kept in Jesus Christ. So every book of the Bible shows uh, Jesus Christ. So if you're following along in your blanks, um, God made promises to us in the Old Testament that are revealed and fulfilled in the New Testament. And the promises that God made to Abraham which is the Abrahamic covenant, are for us too. So God promised uh, that that Abraham would be a great nation, promised him a land, and these promises are all about restoration and redemption and a reversal of the fall. So these promises in the Old Testament are all kept in Jesus Christ. So as I told you, this study is based on curriculum by Mark Dever, and he is the pastor at Capitol Hill Baptist in Washington, D.C. And I'm specifically going to cover just the first five books of the Bible, um, the Pentateuch, the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And as I said, we could spend all year on each one of these books or on parts of each one of these books. But my desire is to just give you an outline that you can um, have that good framework so that you can go back and read each of these books. So your homework is to read Genesis this week. And I would encourage you to read through the whole book in one sitting if you can, because that gives you a really good cohesive picture if you look at it all at, all at once. It would take a few hours to go through and, and read it at once, but it's um, a really good practice. So um, I'm going to show you how each book fits into the redemptive historical context. And that, in other words, is God's plan to rescue, redeem, and save a people by his grace and for his glory. So Genesis sets the stage for these promises. You can look at Genesis in two segments. The first segment is chapters 1 through 11, and that covers the history of the whole human race, the faithlessness of mankind, and it covers about 2,000-plus years. The main events are creation, chapters 1 through 2, the fall, chapters 3 through 5, the flood, chapters 6 through 9, and the Tower of Babel, chapters 10 through 11. Then in the second segment, chapters 12 through 50, so that's a much larger segment, that covers the history of the entire Jewish race. And that's the history of a particular family line known as the patriarchs. 
and that's about 350 years in time. Those main characters are Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. So if you want to look at a thematic outline of Genesis, uh, the first segment, God is revealing his character to us through the created world. That's the first seven days of creation, the dawn of humanity, the descendants of Adam. Yes? Am I going too fast? Okay, I'll slow down. Okay. <laughs> I actually had this on PowerPoint, but we didn't get all that on there today. We had a snafu with the PowerPoint. <laughs> but this is actually, should be in your handout. If you look back in the handouts, there is a handout that has an outline of the, the um, an outline of Genesis. It's on that first page. It, it says Old Testament Core Seminar. There's a study outline, and it lists just some the uh, basic outline for the two segments of Genesis. Yes. So the seven days of creation. Then the dawn of humanity. The descendants of Adam and their sin. And the punishment for their sin. That Mark Dever calls the flood the uncreating of the universe. <laughs> and grace given. That's all one line. Punishment for their sin, uncreating the universe, and grace given. And the next point is humanity after the flood, still sinful. And the last point is the seed of the woman continues on. The last point is the seed of the woman continues on. Okay, so the themes uh, for the second segment of Genesis... God's special people will live in God's special place under God's special rule. So this section of Genesis is all about covenant. These are the promises made to Abraham that are passed down to his descendants by which God will bless the whole world. 
These are the promises made to us that find their fulfillment in Messiah. So Mark Dever writes about the three aspects of God's character that are, are revealed all throughout Genesis. Those are God's holiness and the judgment of sin, God's mercy, and God's sovereignty. So how do these tie into promises made? This is the gospel. That's the foundation for the gospel. God is holy, and he will judge sin. But all have sinned and fall short of his glory. But God is merciful and full of grace. That's John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And Ephesians uh, chapter 2, verses 8 through 9, it's by grace alone that you've been saved, and this is not of yourselves. It's the gift of God so that no one can boast. So it's God's holiness, God's mercy, and God's sovereignty. So in Genesis 1 through 11, God's holiness is very apparent through the accounts of creation, the fall, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, and the Tower of Babel. And three things become very apparent. God is self-existent. God created the heavens and the earth. And he's not dependent on anything or anyone. We did not get here by accident, and we are accountable to him. And then God reveals his holiness through all of the patriarchs and through the stories in the second half of Genesis. His holiness and judgment against sin. Um, in the Genesis 18.25, Abraham is appealing to God on the basis of his holiness as he's asking him, would you not destroy Sodom even if you find ten righteous men, if you find one righteous man? He's appealing to God on the basis of his holiness. Uh, in uh, chapter 32, Jacob is praying and he's confessing his unworthiness before a holy, holy God. In chapter 35, uh, it's noted that God forbids idolatry, and this was even before the Ten Commandments were given. So that was recognized, God's holiness. Uh, in chapter 38, God was, uh, had struck down Judah's wicked sons. And in chapter 19, God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah because of his holiness. So these are just a few of his examples. So why should we be holy? We were created to be holy like God, and we're meant to be set apart for God. The Israelites were also called to remain distinct from the surrounding nations, and they were told not to intermarry because then that they would be pulled away to worship the foreign gods of the people that, they, that surrounded them. And an interesting note is to be human is not to be sinful, you know, we say, well, I'm only human, as if being human is to be sinful. But humanness and fallenness are two different things. Jesus was human, but he was not sinful. And Adam and Eve were created and declared to be good before they sinned. So God is going to restore humanity. Humanity and sin are two, two different things. We, we are fallen, but humanity and sinfulness are two separate things.
Okay, then God's mercy. This is its next character trait. And uh, the best example of God's mercy in the first part of Genesis is the ark. And Mark Dever describes this um, really well. He says, Jesus is the vessel of mercy that we can ride safely through the floods of his judgment once we're inside. As Christians, we have no room for pride because we have no spiritual resources of our own. We're totally dependent on, on Christ due to our sin. We're totally dependent on his mercy and grace for salvation. So we know now what could only be dimly perceived in those earliest chapters of Genesis, and that's how God was going to accomplish our salvation. And then, of course, God repeatedly showed mercy to uh, the patriarchs and through the lives of the people in the second segment of Genesis. Um, in Genesis 19, God showed mercy to Lot and his family. In Genesis 30, he opened Rachel's womb. In Genesis 22, God provided the ram for Abraham in place of sacrificing his son Isaac. And later, he provides Jesus as the lamb for all of us. So God is a redeeming God. He takes the mess of our lives and the worst of situations and works them all for our good. Um, also notice the sinful liaison with Judah and his daughter-in-law in, -law in uh, uh, Genesis 38. And that resulted in an addition to the line of Messiah, if you look in uh, Matthew uh, chapter 1, verse 3. And so there were so many examples of how merciful God has been. So we cannot save ourselves any more than Lot could get himself out of Gomorrah. And yet we deserve so much more, so much more punishment, but only Jesus could bear that weight. Now God's sovereignty. In the first part of Genesis, it's no surprise that the author of all creation has authority over everything that he's made. In chapter 1, God creates everything that there is. In chapter 3, he judges everything that he's made, even the creature that bears his image. And in chapter 7, God wipes the earth clean, but he also shows mercy and grace to Noah and to his family. Let's look at Acts 4. You can open your Bibles to Acts chapter 4. And this is where Peter is praying. If you look at verse 25. And Peter prayed. I'm going to skip a little bit here. But Peter prayed, Sovereign Lord, you made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. And then skip down to verse 27. Herod and Pontius Pilate met together with the Gentiles and the people of Israel in this city to conspire against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. They did what your power and will had decided beforehand should happen. So again, God's sovereignty. And turn to John 19. verses 10 and 11. Jesus told Pilate the same thing. Pilate said, don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? 
Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. And then in chapter 10, verse 17. So John chapter 10, verse 17. um, He's speaking to a group of Pharisees. And he says, I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. Only God has this kind of authority. He controls when he will die, he controls how he will die, and he controls who will be involved. So again, God's sovereignty. So in Genesis 12 through 50, if you look at the lives of the people in in that second segment, God chose Abraham. He didn't choose his brother Nahor. God chose Isaac. He didn't choose Ishmael. He chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. And Esau was the oldest son. Ishmael was the older son. He prohibited King Abimelech from acting out his affections towards Sarah. God reigned in every detail, great and small. And then look at Joseph, the life of Joseph. God planned every single detail of his life. And Joseph must have seen this by faith alone because he could have done anything he wanted to do to his brothers when he had complete authority to do so. And yet he still recognized that God meant everything for good. So consider some of the things that God did. First, he revealed the future to Joseph because God controls the future. He allowed Joseph to irritate his brothers so that they would sell him to the Egyptians. He planned to have Joseph work for Potiphar to show his competence and also to provide opportunity for Mrs. Potiphar to falsely accuse him. And God knows Joseph's character, and he knew Mrs. Potiphar's character as well. (laughs) He planned for Joseph's imprisonment, interpretation of dreams, and so that that would distinguish him to Pharaoh so that he would be given authority in order to provide food for Egypt so that his brothers wouldn't starve, all to fulfill the promises made to Abraham. So if you look and see all the many details right from the very beginning. Let's look at Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. These are the promises made to Abraham. Exactly what did he promise him? The Lord said to Abram, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So if you just want to list the promises, he said, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. You will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, curse those who curse you. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And look at Genesis 15. This was the covenant that God cut with Abraham. Okay. 
This is what God promised to Abraham in Genesis 15. He said in chapter, or chapter 15, verse 4, Then the word of the Lord came to him, This man will not be your heir, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. He took him outside and said, Look up at the heavens and count the stars, if indeed you can count them. Then he said to him, So shall your offspring be. Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He also said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to take possession of it. So he promised him a son, offspring as numerous as the stars, and land. Now these are just some notes about this covenant. First of all, it was unilateral. And that meant that it depended only on God to keep the terms. Because God was the only one who passed between the pieces uh, and um, if you read through chapter 15, the method of the covenant, this was um, just the way that they made these solemn vows where they cut the animal pieces in two and then both parties were supposed to pass between the pieces, meaning both parties were responsible for keeping the terms. But God was the only one who passed between the pieces. Abram did not pass between the pieces, which means Abram was not responsible for keeping the terms. Only God was responsible. And that meant God was basically swearing by himself. So to break the terms meant he was calling a curse down on himself, which is impossible to call a curse down on Almighty God. So to break the covenant was impossible. So this should give us great confidence in God and in his faithfulness. So another thing that was special about these promises was uh, the promise of land. Um, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. That was the most perfect land that there was. So God is promising a land to Abraham, and this land is pointing to the greater reality. So it's a physical reality that he was giving them the, the physical land, but it's meant to actually be reversing the effects of the fall because it was pointing to uh, the land at the end of time, the new creation. So God's people living in God's special place, just like they did in the beginning. So we, like Abraham, are being called out of our earthly home to live in God's heavenly country. So we are, like, we are travelers also waiting for fulfillment of this promise of our land. We're waiting for our promised land in heaven. So look at Hebrews 11.8. By faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations, whose architect and builder is God. So the New Testament church would have understood this connection very well. And it was further underscored by the fact that the only land Abraham ever owned in his earthly life was the grave plot where he buried his wife. Then the promise of offspring. We are the children of the promise, not by blood, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So this is the family that God was building. This is the church. And the way that this happens is by faith. So look again at Genesis 15:6, And this is a verse you can underline in your Bibles. 
Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. Then if you turn to Romans chapter 4, we could read this whole chapter, really. But what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And then if you skip down a little bit um, to chapter 9, or to verse 9, I'm sorry. Is this blessedness only for the circumcision or also for the uncircumcised? We have been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after, but before. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe, but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who were not only circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. And then look at Galatians 3.6. Consider Abraham. He believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. The scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announced the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who have faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. So how amazing the gospel is right there in Genesis, this justification by faith alone. So we have to come to God on his terms, not on ours. It's not by works, not by good deeds, by church attendance, good behavior, baptism, or any other effort on our part. And this was further, I was further reminded about this very recently um, I, I know of two individuals who are very intelligent people, very well-educated people, who have declared themselves to be atheists. And I realized it's not even how smart we are. It's not how intelligent we are that we can figure out the gospel, we can understand the gospel. It has nothing to do with anything about ourselves. That is not even our understanding of the gospel. It is completely God's grace and how he reveals himself to us. So look at Ephesians 2. Okay. Ephesians 2, 8. For it is by grace you have been saved, through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We can't even boast in how smart we are. <laughs> so election is another theme that's very um, present in Genesis. And the uh, idea of election is that some are chosen by grace, not by anything that they've done. And there's a lot of evidence for this. And as we've talked about God's sovereignty all through this, um, Abraham was chosen, not Ishmael, um, and, uh, or um, I'm sorry, Isaac was chosen, not Ishmael. Uh, it's not Esau, it's Jacob. Was Jacob chosen because he was more righteous? No, he wasn't more righteous. He was deceitful, he was opportunistic. 
Why was he chosen? I don't know. Why did God choose him? I don't know. It was all God's grace. Now let's look at Romans 9, verses 10 to 13. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born, or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose and election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Another example, um, of course, is Joseph. Let's look at Genesis 45, verses 4 through 5. Okay, verse 4. Then Joseph said to his brothers, Come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. So there's his brothers. After uh, all the things that had have happened, Joseph has now risen to power in Egypt and they now know what the, the fact that they had sold their brother into slavery and now he has authority to do whatever he wants to them. And he's recognizing the fact that of what they did. But he also says, I know that God arranged for this to happen. So it's both. We have responsibilities, but God superintends all the events of the universe. So Joseph's brothers were responsible for what they did, and yet God used it for, for good. So it's, it's both and, and the same thing with us. So God promised to save the world through a particular family line. He couldn't allow them to die of starvation in the famine. <laughs> I had a teacher in school who said, if you're born to be shot, you'll never drown. <laughs> a lot of truth to that. <laughs> so in terms of God's sovereignty, um, I don't pretend to know what God is doing, you know, um, especially concerning tragedy and suffering, but... We do know that the God of Genesis is the same yesterday, today, and forever, and he remains sovereignly in control of all things, whether we can see it now or not. Even if we have to wait years and years, like <clears throat> Abraham and Sarah had to wait years and years for the fulfillment of promises, and the patriarchs never did see the fulfillment of all the promises, and Joseph was in prison for 13 years. 13 years in prison, you would think, has God forgotten you know, what is he doing? And we sit in prisons of our own, you know, for years and think, has God forgotten? But he has not. And these are examples um, to show that he has not forgotten. So uh, the patriarchs didn't see those fulfillment of promises. We may not see fulfillment of promises in our lifetimes either. So we just have to trust. And that's our response is obedience and faith. Um, so we are justified by faith alone. Um, and we see that a that was Abraham's response also. Abraham he heard, he believed, and he obeyed. So when God said, leave your home in Haran, he left and he went. 
When uh, God made a promise of offspring, he believed God's promise. He made a promise of land, and Abraham believed. He obeyed God's command to circumcise himself and his family as confirmation of the covenant. That's a huge commitment, <laughs> an adult, to do something. That's huge. If you really think about what he was doing, that's a huge commitment of faith. And not to mention his willingness to sacrifice Isaac. But how, how we think, how did he do that? And Hebrews tells us how he did it. Let's look at Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11, verse 17. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had received the promises was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead, and figuratively speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. So Abraham reasoned that God could raise the dead. So he trusted God that much. He knew God that well. And that, that's our example. We need to know our God. We need to not just know about him. We need to know him personally. So the bottom line for us, our creator is holy and perfect, and he made us to be like himself. But we have sinned, and that separates us from him, and that brings rightful judgment on ourselves. But the good news is that God is a God of restoration, and he made a promise to Abraham, and that promise is for us too. Uh, and that's a promise to restore what was lost, to bring us home to a land that will be perfect again, where he will take care of us as his people, just like it was before the fall. So it's through faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross, Christ on the cross, that we become members of God's family. So we are children of the promise. By faith, Abram believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. And that's our hope. I think it was Charles Spurgeon who said, I'm not sure if it was him or not, but the, you may have heard this quote before, for non-believers, this earth is as close to heaven as they will ever get. But for believers, this earth is as close to hell as we will ever get. So that is good news. So Genesis is the book of beginnings. It's the foundation for all of God's promises. The self-existent God created the world and created humanity, and we see in that both the beginning of all our problems and also the beginning of our faith. We see the beginning of the human race, the beginning of human sinfulness, and the beginning of the Christian faith, all that introduced in Genesis. Um, notice that in the Bible, only three women are described as barren. They are Sarah, the wife of Abraham, and then God gave her Isaac. And Rebekah, the wife of Isaac, and then God gave her Jacob and Esau. And Rachel, the wife of Jacob, and God gave her Joseph and Benjamin. And God promised to make Abraham the father of a great nation, but the first two women in the line of that promise were described as barren. And I think God did that to show Nothing depends on us. It all depends on him. So he is showing himself to be great. He wants all the glory. So he is completely trustworthy. He demands all of our obedience. And what he promises, he delivers. So 